And hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, before you even listen to this, please follow my Twitter feed at JakeJakeNY, because that is where you will find many of the articles and other references that I speak about in not only this edition of Novak Now, but many others. This is not just to promote my Twitter feed, believe me. It's to make sure that you can get some of the extra materials follow all the references uh, that I make because I am aware that not everything I think about and I have read is are things that you think about and you read. So uh, it's a matter of courtesy, it's a matter of fact checking, and it's a matter it's a it's a it's a matter of making sure that you have a little bit more to ex- explore than just my voice and just the things I bring up. Um, I want to dedicate this edition of Novak now to What I call, and I don't think it's a stretch at all to call it this, what I call President Trump's last stand. And for President Donald Trump, it's it's interesting. We've had a very tumultuous four years with him in office, no matter if you're a major supporter of his or a detractor. I think tumultuous is a word that most of us would agree on, even if we like all the results of the of the tumult. Um and much of that is self-imposed by his opponents, both politically and personally, who have made it much more tumultuous and divisive and in many cases violent than it needed to be uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But what's really interesting about President Trump's last stand that you know may have played itself out uh, over the weekend, although I do think there'll be a little bit more to come in this battle, But his last stand is really interesting because it's one of those rare moments coming at the end of a presidency where a president is taking a stand on an issue and and, and his opponents and supporters are falling in line in the way that defines the entire presidency. Now, what I'm talking about here is President Trump's criticism of and fight with the stimulus bill that the congressional leaders and both the Democrats and the Republicans, because of course, as you remember, the Democrats control the lower house, the house of representatives and the Republicans control the Senate. So when a bill passes through Congress right now, it absolutely means there has to be an agreement between democratic and Republican leadership. Otherwise the bill doesn't pass. So when the COVID relief stimulus bill, whatever you want to call it passed at the beginning of the week, it immediately started getting a lot of criticism from a lot of the usual people who criticize major bills because our bills are thousands like this are thousands of pages long. We know that almost no one who voted for actually read it. We know that. And we know in this particular case that a small percentage, a too small percentage of this COVID relief bill actually provides any relief from the economic effects of COVID-19. There are billions of dollars in this $900 billion plan that go to in foreign aid. There are billions of dollars that go to people who have nothing to do with COVID and entities that have nothing to do with COVID. There is a lot of money that's going to, surprise, surprise, the members of Congress themselves who are getting some kind of increase in the value of their own health care plans. They couldn't get away with, I guess, a bald-faced pay raise. So they basically do another pay, a pay raise of another kind, which is they improve their their benefits, which is, of course, tantamount to a pay raise. They they have, they get better care for, for less of an outlay of their own. So that is a pay raise. It's just not a salary raise. So 
These are all things that I strongly feel are objectionable. These are all things that the president is absolutely right to complain about. And of course, he made a big point of his complaints being the fact that he wanted the American people to get more than the $600 checks that were allotted to them in the original iteration of the bill. Um, But he also talked about a lot of the money and a lot of the, the waste that was going in this bill to things that have nothing to do with COVID. And only in Washington... And only in the mainstream news media, which acts as a cheerleader for the Washington establishment and and has more so in the last four years than it ever did before. And it had done so before in the past, but truly now in 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 a remarkably embarrassing way. But only in Washington could a person fighting for more money in a bill supposed to be helping people who are affected by COVID economically and I guess also in a health way physically. Only in Washington could that person be considered the bad guy because it's exactly how President Trump was depicted all weekend. Trump rages as people might lose their benefits. Trump, you know, having a temper tantrum. These were all the headlines that you saw Saturday and Sunday and Monday and all that kind of thing. And only in Washington is, is someone who does that the bad guy. And only in Washington is someone who allows for all this wastefulness, allows for most of the money to go to people who don't need it and countries that don't need it right now, at least not related to COVID and dealing with our own COVID-19 crisis in this country. Only in Washington is someone who fights for the status quo of this is how we've always done it and wastefulness is fine because that's how we always do it. Only in Washington is that person the good guy or for lack of I, my my. The more favored term, because this is the term we're going to hear a lot over the next year, which is only is that person a more sane and calm moderate. We're going to be hearing about how spending 90% of the bill uh, on things that have nothing to do with COVID-19 is the sane and moderate thing to do. And complaining about it and holding it up even for a day or two is the wild and crazy thing and tantrum-like thing to do. We're going to hear about that. We've heard this is this actually predates President Trump, my friends. If you remember the government shutdown battles that we've had, a few of them since 1995. There have been a lot of shutdowns. There were a lot of government shutdowns before the 1990s when the government shutdown story became something more familiar to most Americans. But since that time, every time a government shutdown has been triggered by Republicans who are hoping to be a little bit more fiscally responsible, a little bit more honest about where the money really goes in all these bills, they are always cast as the villains, the horrible villains who are holding up things because the government is shut down and now you can't get your mortgage or you can't go to the post office or all those kinds of things. None of which is necessarily true in a shutdown, but you get my meaning. And so I've written an editorial, which you can find on my Twitter feed, a a column. I haven't written in a while. I've been trying to keep a lower profile because the censorship folks on Twitter and Facebook, and probably not on LinkedIn, but but are are really keeping their eyes very, very wide open right now. And they're being very, very aggressive. I've had a lot of my followers uh, knocked off, not because they're my followers, just because they've lost their Twitter accounts. They've been suspended. They've been out. Uh, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones. I was at about 26,100 followers, and now I'm down to 25,000 and about 800 followers. So not a huge number percentage-wise. But these are people who didn't just stop following me because they don't like me. These are people who got suspended or got taken off of Twitter. 
Um, and Facebook does this too. And, and I've been slapped with stuff. And so I've been trying to be very careful with this, but this was something that I had to say because it was just so interesting that you have an issue like this where president Trump is doing something that swims against the tide of many years of establishment Washington that both Democrats and Republicans and throw in the news media are responsible for. He's being demonized for it. The crazy way that is the status quo of Washington is, is, portrayed incorrectly as sane and and anyone who is says otherwise is a bad person and boy does this one story that we've seen with the president's fight against the covid bill as it originally came out of capitol hill could there be a story that more encapsulates and summarizes what we've seen over the last four years i don't know if there is one and it's so amazing that it's coming in these last weeks of his time in office. And yes, I do believe he's going to leave office, not only willingly, I don't think he's going to hold himself up in the White House, but also because I don't think that despite the fact that this 2020 election has been so suspicious and so terribly carried out by so many of the crucial states that decided this election, I don't think there's going to be enough. And I've said this before, I don't think there's going to be enough of an of a of a momentum in the courts or anywhere else to reverse the quote unquote official results of this election, which is very sad because as I told Nachum uh, Siegel on JM in the AM uh, on Friday morning, if you happen to have listened to my appearance on the program, we can have this very very toxic debate about whether there was voter fraud or not in this election, and I think that needs to be done. But because that debate is so very toxic, as I said before, if you write something on one of the social media platforms right now, the big ones, I mean Twitter and Facebook, about evidence of voter fraud, you really run the risk of being banned and censored forever on those platforms, and I am not exaggerating. So that's the kind of thing. And in a country right now where we really only have one major publisher, that being Google in partnership with Twitter and Facebook, so it's sort of like a trinity, but it's it's still basically one kind of publishing decision-making uh, body because so much of us really are. I mean, r- right now the publishing industry, the media industry is online and really only online. I know some of you listening probably still get physical newspapers, especially those of you who observe Shabbat. And, of course, you want to be able to read a newspaper on Shabbat and you can't do that on your devices on Shabbat if you observe, you know, if you observe it. So I know that a lot of people listening are an exception to this rule, but understand that the overwhelming majority of people in the world right now who consume information or what is what we call published information are doing so online, and Google controls an inordinate amount of it, along with its, yeah, again, it's not an official partnership, it's not an official merged company, but the Twitter, Facebook, and Google are, are deciding pretty much what we see out there and what we don't when it comes to what we would call news and information. So if you anger those folks, you know, you could really be quickly deplatformed. It's not like the old days where if the Times wouldn't publish your article, you could get it in the Wall Street Journal. It's not like the old days where if you couldn't get on MSNBC, well, at least you'll get on Fox. That's true to some extent now, but you can really be disappeared in, in, in a lot of ways if you, if, you, if you go down that road of the fraud argument and you know, I, I've made that argument. I've done it. I've taken that chance a couple of times. I don't want to go on with it right now about it because it's just so toxic. I think we'll need some time for that. But here's what I am willing to talk about when it comes to this election, which is the very essential ingredient of a free society, of a democratic election, 
that is the secret ballot. His, no, there's no f- disputing this, and this shouldn't be something that gets anyone suspended from anywhere. There's no disputing that the, that the sanctity and the importance of the secret ballot was destroyed in this election more than ever before. Vote by mail and absentee ballots, by definition, are not secret ballots. We have your name on those documents, folks. And considering the fact that vote by mail decided this election, and there's no denying that, considering that fact, we have the fact that is not deniable. This is whether the votes are fraudulent or not. Let's put the fraudulent argument aside for just a moment or for the purposes of this program, just for now, for this particular edition of Novak Now, and understand that an election decided by a non-secret ballot is not truly a democratic and legitimate election. Now, that doesn't mean that we burn the thing down. That doesn't mean we do any violence. I don't support any of those things. But I do support a secret ballot. And unless we get that back in our coming elections, then these elections will not be on the up and up. And that's really all I have to say about that. Now, getting back to Trump's last stand, this is so very similar to the way that his opponents, political and personal opponents in both politics and in the news media, have responded to all of the things that he has done that swim against the tide of establishment Washington. When I say establishment Washington, I mean most of the leadership of the Democratic and Republican Party and the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., who have so much power. Whether it was his stand against illegal immigration, which for the most part both parties had stopped talking about until he came around whether it was his stand against China's unfair trade practices, which neither party was willing to even talk about, really, until he became president. Whether it was, you know, and this is very important for our, all, our, for our audience here on, on the Nachum Siegel Network, whether it was all the things that he did that swam against the so-called conventional wisdom in the Middle East, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan Heights, um, most important, even more important than that, pursuing and succeeding in securing peace, the Arab-Israeli peace deals that were separate from the Palestinian issue. All these things, not only was, were, they, were we told for years by establishment Washington that you couldn't do them, but we were told that if anyone tried to do them, let alone succeeded in doing them, it would set off a massive war and untold destruction in the Middle East. Uh, I could go on with all the, with so many other examples of things that President Trump did that were, again, swimming against that major tide of what people mislabel as the sane, normal, moderate thing to do. And every time he did it, he was demonized in the extreme. And every time he did it, we were warned of dire, dire consequences. I'll throw in a couple of other examples. The taking out of Qasem Soleimani, who I continue to say was the world's number one bad guy at the time of his death. And Moshe Fakhrizadeh, the head of the and founding father of Iran's nuclear weapons program. Those actions were also, we were warned that we should never try to do such a thing. And the fact that Trump allowed it and, and, and went through with it was going to lead to an all-out war the next day. None of these things happened. And again, if you read my column that I put on my Twitter feed about Trump's last stand and, and how it so perfectly encapsulates everything we've seen from him and the way people have reacted to him over the last four years, I, I hope you, that you'll read it. And just so you know, for those of you who are not major Trump supporters, the entire column is not a slavish uh, kudo to President Trump. I, I do include some things that I think were mistakes on his part in the way that he 
worked with his messaging to the American people in, in, in the face of that massive tide. Not properly anticipating and, and, and having a good strategy to go against what he knew would be coming at him from establishment Washington and the news media is a major failure of his, of his presidency. It's not that anything he would have done would have won over those horrible enemies, but there should have been a better strategy for getting a better chance to get some words in edgewise against that massive, massive wave against him every single time he did stuff like this. So I think it's really interesting what we're seeing now. We should understand this, that hopefully someone else will come along in the coming years who will also swim against establishment Washington's ingrained mistakes, mistakes that they refuse to move away from, let alone admit or, to, or, or apologize for. And hopefully it will be someone who can more successfully defeat what, will, what would be a massive movement against him or her, trying to change the status quo in Washington. As, as supporters of Israel, most of us listening to this program know how beneficial it was that President Trump and Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt and all those people were willing to swim against that horrible tide that goes against anyone who tries to do something different. And what we're going to see from the incoming Biden administration is a very furious attempt to bring back all the members of the old establishment and bring back that, the, the leaders of those old waves into every possible level of the administration. And when it comes to Israel and the Middle East, we're going to see people like Martin Indyk and Dennis Ross back into major positions in the administration. People who have been incredibly wrong about their outlook for the Middle East and for Israel. Incredibly in the wrong so many times. But they'll be back because this is establishment Washington is, it's more than the fact that they don't like President Trump or they don't agree with the policies. It's more than that. To really understand the pushback against him, you have to understand that this is a per- that he he represented a personal affront to their authority. As much as establishment Washington may not like a particular Republican or Democrat who comes around who is a career politician or may be threatened by him or her, in the end, all, all of them until Trump came around were still mostly team players. George W. Bush still expanded the size of government incredibly with the Department of Homeland Security and a few other things that he did to the point that he was a team player. Yes, he was conservative and he did things that you know a lot of the bureaucrats didn't like and a lot of the establishment news media really hated, but he still was the team player. He didn't, for example, go into the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq without also paying off in many different ways, the different establishment power centers in Washington, D.C. And for those of you who remember the, the march towards the war in Iraq and that year-long process, it was more than a year, I guess, where President Bush was trying to convince and work on all the different leadership centers in Washington and the world to get enough, just to get that minimum amount of support that he felt he needed for that full-scale invasion of Iraq. You might remember how long that took and how much massaging of egos that had to go on and how much work had to be done for all of that. And for, and for that to happen, it, it, it needed all the things that President Trump doesn't do or didn't do. The, the sweet talking, the, 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 the behind the scenes uh, compromises, things like that. And 
It's important to understand that we need things to be more out in the open. We need more disruptor-type people who are looking from a policy point of view. We don't necessarily need disruptor personalities like Donald Trump was. Although I will say this, I don't know if anyone other than Donald Trump and his clear liking when it comes to getting into, you know, I, I guess the word is pugnacity, for those of you who want to look up that word, you know, his willingness to sort of get into little scraps here all the time. I don't know if anyone other than President Trump could have taken unpopular stands as much as he did. When I say unpopular, unpopular in Washington, I think the American people, if you see all, if you took all of Trump's policies and took his name off of them, I think you would see a very high support for just about all of them. And I know that this is for a fact because I've actually seen it. We saw polls in the years leading up to Trump's candidacy where people really were in favor of border walls and border fencing. But if you change the question to do you support Trump's wall, then the numbers would plummet into the ground. So I do believe that these policies uh, are popular. And unlike some other politicians in the past, President Trump had also a very a strong personal support group. It just wasn't, it just didn't include the majority of the American people. There were a lot of people who voted for him, remember, who still personally never liked him. But there was a strong personal connection that a lot of Trump's voters had with him. And that was one of the reasons why it wasn't just a question of, just a question of policies with him. And it wasn't just a question of people who hated his personality. Because if you have someone whose personality as a leader is not inspiring to anyone, it doesn't matter how popular his or her policies are. But anyway, I urge you to read the column because to, to me, it's, it's just so uncanny how we have this fight and this depiction of Trump vis-a-vis the stimulus bill and how incredibly representative it is and how very educational it is. If you want to understand the Trump presidency and how everyone responded to it really, really well, then pay attention to how this last week has gone. Uh, in the fight over this bill and all the things that are are going on with it, um, it it's it's just an important little lesson for all of us when it comes to when it comes to understanding this presidency. Um, I think another issue that we should all pay attention to in the coming days is an interesting reaction. And this is very much connected to the COVID relief bill. You know, we've had some people speaking out about stuff that's in the COVID relief bill. And then we had one particular celebrity. I don't even want to mention her name because I don't think, A, I don't think she's a great enough talent. You know, there are some celebrities who I don't agree with politically, like, for example, a Meryl Streep or, um, gee, I, I can't think of, I, I, I think almost every actor, I don't really agree with their, poli- with their political views and the things they say about uh, society. But there are some who are so talented that I would be a fool. To, to say, oh, I never liked your acting anyway. I think there's a lot of people who do that, and I think that that's not, that's not right to do. Let's be honest about talent. So I don't even want to say this particular celebrity's name. Unfortunately, she's very popular on social media. She has a lot of followers. And in response to the COVID relief bill, she decided to say something about money that the United States, quote unquote, sends to Israel. And, and, and you know, she's been, I think, rightfully accused of unfairly singling out Israel and anti-Semitism for it. And um, it's really a disgrace, and it's very, very sad. I thought I would use this, though, for a positive, a positive, in a positive way, to try to help everyone listening here. And I think a lot of the people listening right now already know what I'm about to say. But just in case you don't, or just in case you would like a better way to word it, let's talk a little bit about 
what we talk about U.S. support for Israel. First of all, let me give you what I believe to be important guidelines. First rule, do not say the U.S. gives quote-unquote foreign aid to Israel. Foreign aid is defined very, very specifically in our federal law. Foreign aid is literally money, checks, cash payment, cash on the barrelhead. Here's some money, and you use it for you know, helping the poor or whatever you want to do in your country. Israel doesn't get that kind of aid. In the past, it has received sometimes one-time payments like that from the United States that are specifically targeted at certain needs. For example, after the 1991 Gulf War, when Israel agreed to the United States and the original Bush administration's demand not to retaliate against Iraq for the Scud missile damage in Tel Aviv and other places in Israel, Israel was given money from the United States to help rebuild the buildings and some of the other infrastructure that was damaged. But that was a one-shot deal. Israel gets military loans from the United States. Basically, it's money that loans isn't really a good word either. Israel, the support the United States gives Israel is basically a way of the United States government giving money to its own defense industry. Israel gets a certain number of billions of dollars in the United States for its defense. 75% of it must be spent on American-made, American-company-produced weaponry and defense technology. Even And, of course, that includes a lot of technology that is made in conjunction with, is, with Israel, like Iron Dome and things like that. It's not like they have to buy someone else's product that they sight unseen. But for the most part, that money is basically money the United States is giving to its own defense contractors. That means American workers, American businesses, and, of course, these are public companies. American shareholders are benefiting from this through Israel's purchase of this. And the Trump administration pushed forward... Uh, policies that will now very soon make it basically 100% of the money will have to be spent on American-made products. Now, this is a little bit easier for Israel to achieve because of the growing number of partnerships between Israeli tech companies, defense companies, and American defense companies. So it's not really that much of a change for Israel because of how many weapons and other types of defense materials they're making together. But the point being, this is not money that just goes to Israel. It doesn't, and like, whatever, we just give them the money. This is money that is being spent on American-made products and made by American workers that boost our economy and all that stuff. It's important to remember that. And it's also important to remember that that money is not spent just on Israel's defense because Israel takes these things, whether it's Iron Dome, which which actually it developed, or the F-35, which Israel did not originally develop, but Israel takes these things, especially the F-35, and improves them, and the improved product is then used by the United States. In the case of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, which is a jet fighter that has stealth capacity, Israel found a way to double its stealth capacity. In other words, it was able to travel twice as far without being detectable by radar, and of course, it shared that technology with the United States of America. Um, So it's important to remember that Israel, when it comes to money that it gets from the United States, whether it's just to spend it on defense or anything else, is nowhere near one of the top recipients of money. Egypt gets more because Egypt, you know, gets all this kind of money just for, gets literal foreign aid. And there are other examples of this as well. It's important to remember this and to talk about this a lot because People really think that American taxpayer money that should be going to the poor or education or infrastructure is literally going into the pockets of Israelis who's walking around the street on Israel. 
And that's just not true. And there are Jews who believe this as well. So there's just a lot of stuff to correct about this COVID bill, whether it's the president, the way President Trump has been depicted in his fight against some of the problems in it or what some random celebrities have to say about it. There's a lot to fix. And I hope that we learn from that. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.